Thank you for downloading this message from Roots Community Church. We pray that you are encouraged by the word. If you're looking for more information, please visit us at rccphoenix.com. The title of the message today is The Pursuit of Truth. And the reason that we're talking about the pursuit of truth is most people in our culture are not looking for truth. They're looking for affirmation. And here's what I mean by that. If you hold a position because of your belief system or a past hurt or a life experience or your political leanings one way or the other, if you hold a belief, typically what happens is people go to um, sources and listen to people that reinforce their belief. They never look at the other side of the equation, the other side of the argument, the other side of the coin or the other side of the presentation because they want to stay where they are. They want to be right. They want to win. When we talk about pursuing truth, what I'm asking everyone who listens to this and everybody in this room to do is to let go of the, of the position that you may hold on a subject or a belief just for a second, not the core positions of, you know, Jesus is the son of God, you know, the death, burial, and resurrection, the cross. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when you look at a scenario, what I want you to do is look at both sides of the discussion and then look at your Bible and then come to the conclusion um, that you feel like the the Lord's leading you through, through his word. That is how you pursue truth. You are pursuing truth. There is no your truth, my truth, his truth, her truth, our truth. There is none that, that there's opinions, but there is one truth. We are very loose with this idea that, oh, that's, that, that's true for you, or that's your truth, or you pursue what your truth is, but the word of God is the truth. The one that raised from the dead is the truth. And the reason that I'm going to push you to look at both sides of, equa- of an equation and pursue the truth based upon his word and your relationship with him, if you're honest, and it's going to land you in the correct, in the correct place. Um, I used to be able to in our country. Um, I feel like an old guy when I, say, when I start saying that. Well, I used to be back in my day. You know what I mean? I used to make fun of my dad when he'd say that, and now here I am. So I've come. It's, it's over. Come full circle. Um, but uh, back, it used to be several years ago that you could, if someone asked you about a behavior that you were telling them was incorrect or wrong, they would say, why is it wrong? And you could say, well, the Bible says... And then people will be like, well, can't really argue with the good book, can you? You know what I mean? All right, you win. Nowadays, because of where our, our academics and our institutions and our, and our influencers and our celebrities and the people who are in leadership positions around our country, they, are, they would look at you. If you now say the Bible says, you know, that's not right to do, they'd be like, so? Why are you looking and letting some ancient piece of unevolved, irrelevant literature dictate your life 2,000 years after it was, after it was assembled? And they're looking for justification. So the job for us as believers in Christ is now not to just say the Bible says, but present to them the story of how the Bible and the word of God changes you. And that's what I want to do this week. See, everything boils down to the resurrection. Matthew 28, 1 through 10. This is one of the foundational pieces of the gospel. Early on Sunday morning as the new day was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went out to visit the tomb. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, rolled aside the stone, and sat on it. His face shone like lightning, and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards 
shook with fear when they saw him and fell into a dead faint. In some translations, it says they actually played dead. When the angel spoke to the woman, don't be afraid. He said, I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead just as he said what happened. Come, see where his body was laying. And now go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead and he's going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Remember what I've told you. The women ran quickly from the tomb. They were very frightened, but also filled with great joy. And they rushed to give the disciples the angel's message. And as they went, Jesus met them and greeted them. They ran into him, grasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go tell my brothers to leave for Galilee, and they will see me there. The hope, the expectation, the new life, the, the, all of this has starting to make sense. The things that Jesus has taught up until this point are starting to fire off in their minds. They're looking back and going, oh, that's what he meant. And now they have this wonderful excitement that the, the Savior has risen. Jesus is alive. And they're going back and telling everybody. And we can sit in here as most of us as, as, as a group of believers and say, we all believe that. But it is increasingly um, normal for people to look at that and go, what? Um, he died and came back to life. Cool, man. Right on. Yeah, you just go over there and believe that weirdo stuff. I'm going to come back to reality. <clears throat> and so what I want to do today is I want to tell us, instead of going back and repeating the story that probably everybody in this room knows, I want to tell you a story of a man and the entire message will be weaved around his life story, and his name is Lee. Lee was, um, uh, at a very young age, he, he uh, kind of realized that he was very logical and very cynical. And he, um, uh, let, let me say that, he was skeptical at a young age. He grew into a cynic later on, that, that was what, what he would say. And he was very skeptical as a young man, and as he, was, um, as he was growing up, he heard the gospel, he heard the people talk about Jesus and the resurrection and the, the crucifixion and the burial. He heard the story about God and how he loves everybody, but then he looked around and he saw how much craziness was going on in the world, how much hate, how much evil, how much hunger, how much terrible things were going on in life, and he was like, man, there, there ain't no God if all this is going on. Don't tell me about no omnipresent, all-powerful, all you know, all-knowing God who knew all this was going to happen and lets it happen, you guys can keep that. There is no God. And at a very young age, he became an atheist. He, um, he, his skepticism led him to cynicism that rooted him in his position of there is no God. He went to college, and um, uh, he, his, his majors of study were journalism and law. So take a cynical guy and put them in law and journalism, and what happens? they get worse, right? Like it's even more cynical than when they started out. And so he was rooted in this cynicism. And so as he was looking at his life, as he was looking at how he was going to live his life, he made a determination. He laid it out kind of in, in, in a linear form in his mind. And he said, there is no God. There is no purpose. There is no heaven or hell. There is no reason for us being here. This is all one big accident. We're just evolving, and then we came, and we go back after we die to go to dust, and so um, there's not really anything other for me to do than to pursue whatever makes me happy. 
See, he, he looked at the people who believed in God and thought they were weak. They were just made up some kind of make-believe story to convince themselves that there was something after death. And he watched funerals happen and these people die and be put in the ground. And he thought, I'm not going to be sitting here trying to trick myself that there's something in life after death. I'm not going to do that. So he said, I am going to only pursue pleasure. He became what is called a hedonist. And it's the next line there in your notes. And it's a hedonist defined as the belief that, a, that the pursuit of pleasure is the most important thing in life. A belief that the pursuit of pleasure is the most important thing in life. Now, you may look at me and go, well, Matt, I mean, I kind of do some things that make me happy. Like, there's a few of us in this room who have just discovered the, the phenomenon of pickleball, right? And we like to go and, you know, and, and act like we're like, wah, you know, like we got it down and the old guys next to us are killing us. But, I mean, like, they're much better than us. But, you know, I like to do some things that are pleasurable or enjoyable. Uh, right. That's normal. But the hedonist viewpoint has a ripple effect, and it's the next line in your notes. The hedonist doesn't care who is hurt or abused in their pursuit of pleasure. The hedonist doesn't care who is hurt or abused in the pursuit of pleasure. If you have something that I want that I think will give me some form of pleasure, I don't care if I lie, cheat, steal, misrepresent, backstab you, manipulate the situation. I am only after what will bring me pleasure. And if anybody gets hurt in my wake, then that's too bad for you because y'all should have been pursuing pleasure for yourself. I'm pursuing pleasure for me. And it is a it is a great grossly disgusting um, viewpoint and heart posture to say, I will run over anyone because pleasure is my highest goal. Self-gratification is my God. That's the hedonist perspective. See, Lee wanted the applause. He labeled himself as, a, as, a, as a, someone who lived a narcissistic type of life. And so he worked really hard in his profession, and he, he became an investigative journalist for a very well-known and well-respected newspaper in Chicago called the Chicago Tribune. If you're under 30 and you don't know what a newspaper is, um, there's this printed paper. Just Google it. It comes every day. It's, the fat ones are on Sunday with the coupons in them. Just Google it. But he worked for this well-respected journalistic um, place called the Chicago Tribune, and he was—he—he he had a—they um, had a rule in his—in his—in um, his department that they would verify everything. They didn't believe anybody's word on anything. They needed at least two or three sources. There was none of this like today where there's like, well, an unnamed source who we can't tell you where it's from or verified said this. And it's all rumor mill, rumor mill and blog posts, right? They were legit journalists trying to find out what the real story was going on, and he was really good at it. That cynicism and skepticism put him in a position to where he believed nobody. There was nobody who was telling the truth, and he picked it apart. Every single story, he would dissect it. They even had a funny sign in his office that said, if your mother says that she loves you, check it out. I need two or three more witnesses to verify because I'm not just taking your mama's word. Like, that's only one. I need two or three more witnesses, right? And so that was his, 
his life, and, and he was so good at his job, he began to win awards, and the gratification began to, came, to come all at once, and he felt great about it. He began to be promoted and take higher levels of, uh, of uh, responsibility, and he was promoted up into these supervisor positions till he eventually became the lead editor at the, the, le the lead legal editor at the Chicago Tribune. Publicly, he was, bless you, publicly, he was winning awards. People were looking at him as this guy who had this, he was a force to be reckoned with. He was fierce. He was get out of his way. He was going to get the story. He was going to get the truth. He was going to pick it apart. He was the man, and that's how it looked publicly, but privately, Lee was falling apart. They didn't, the people who were applauding him and giving him awards didn't realize that Saturday night he was face down in the snow in an alley because he was too drunk or high to figure out where he was or even walk. He lived a wildly immoral life. Wildly immoral. There was nothing that he didn't try, nothing he didn't go after. There was no person he didn't, if he wanted to be with them, he, he found a way to, to, to be with them. He just went after everything that he wanted to pleasure, to fulfill that desire, the hedonistic desire for self-gratification. Somewhere along the line, he had convinced a, a young woman to marry him, and they had a, had a child together, and her name was Allison. And you would think that becoming a father and a husband would change a man, but no, his life perspective was still in that hedonistic line. And so if he came home, and didn't like what she was cooking, he would just throw it away. He came home and was angry. He would take it out and kick holes in the wall and scream and yell and curse and holler. Whatever he felt, he just let it go un unashamed, unhindered. He just blah right out of his mouth. If he was wanted to go get drunk and he was supposed to do something that night, he didn't care. He would go and drink. It got to the point where he recognized that his daughter, his five-year-old daughter, Allison, would sit at home. And when daddy would come home... And Lee would walk in the door. She would quickly pick up all of her toys and rush to her room and close the door because she did not want the yelling and the screaming and the hollering and everything that he was about. She didn't want to be around it anymore. And at five, she couldn't get out of the house. All she could do was get into a room, and she sat there and waited for him to go to bed or for something to happen that she felt safe to come out. They were married for several years, and Lee's wife was eventually had, had a friend who invited her to, God forbid, a Bible study. She didn't dare tell her husband, but she kind of went covertly to these Bible stories or th these Bible studies, and she started to learn about a God who loved her and that could change her life. She learned about the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, and after she went several times, her heart began to soften, and she felt the truth being presented to her, and she gave her life to Christ and became a Christian. She was wildly nervous to tell her husband because this man was an atheist, and she was, she, you know, when they got married, she was an agnostic. An atheist says there is no God. An ag agnostic says, I don't know if there's a God or not, and I don't really care. I'm just going to do my thing. She was indecisive and indifferent. But now she had chosen a side, and she came home, and well, he started to recognize a little difference in his wife. 
Through the course of conversation, she finally tells him, look, I need to tell you something. I've been going to a Bible study. And he was like, what? This nonsense? And she goes, yeah, but it's not nonsense to me. I'm, I gave my life to Christ. I became a Christian. Lee was irate. The first word that went through his brain, these are his words, not mine. The first word that went through his brain was divorce. I'm done with this one. I can't take this. She's been swindled by some lion, pastor, money-grubbing, televangelist, cult guy, and all she's going to do is go to this place, and it's going to be weird, and, oh, I didn't marry this. I wanted to keep life the way it was. I liked it the way it was, but she had to go and change. So he tried to formulate a way to get her back and pull her out of the belief that she had landed in for Christianity. And so he waited. And he watched his wife change in so many ways for the better. She was more loving. She was more kind. She was more gracious with him. She was more, she, she was more gentle with their daughter. And he loved every single bit of it. But he just looked at her and said, I can't believe this. These are good changes. But I don't want to go down this road or this religious nut job stuff. I don't want to live a lie. And so he decided how in the world... Can I get her back out of this? How in the world can I pull her back from the ledge, so to speak? And he said, you know what? She's a thinker. I am going to do my investigative research best. And I'm going to disprove this nonsense, this made-up mythical legend fairy tale that she believes, I'm going to do this, and I think I can do it, arrogance on display, in a weekend. He said, I'll give my next weekend to try to figure this out, and so he sat down and went back over the story in his mind and listened to a couple people tell him, what is this whole thing about Jesus? And he was interviewing people, and, and he came to the conclusion this is one of the first right conclusions he come, that he came to, that the story of, uh, of, of Christianity, the story of Christ, basically hinges everything about the Christian belief structure hinges on the resurrection, and he was right. The next line in your notes is the key to Christianity is the resurrection. He thought if I could pull apart the resurrection and prove this ancient myth is just that, some made-up legend, then I can get to the point where I can convince my wife to drop this nonsense and we can go back to this life of pleasure that I've been pursuing. You may look at me and say, Matt, well, are you sure that the resurrection is the linchpin of the faith? Uh, yeah, don't take my word for it. Let's look at the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 through 20. This is Paul talking to believers in the city of Corinth. And if Christ had not been raised, then your faith is useless. And you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are to be more pitied than anyone in the world. But in fact... Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. 
Paul admits openly to the believers that the resurrection, if the resurrection did not happen, then we have nothing. And Lee found this thread and said, I'm going to pull on this. He had seen many people research ancient documents in the past and and figure out where the forgeries were and figure out where the gaps in the stories were. And so he's like, I'm going to put all of my effort, my investigative research, my uh, um, award-winning focus, and my dedication to disproving this ridiculous story of the resurrection. And so the next four points I'm going to go through with you quickly, I want to tell you what he found. Number one in your notes is execution evidence. Execution evidence. Next on your notes, there's a question he asked. Was Jesus dead after being crucified? He started at the very basic thing. Was he even dead? Because he can't come back to life or resurrect if he wasn't dead in the first place. So let me prove, let me go through and find the sources that would tell me that he didn't really die. So as he began his research, what he discovered is that historians uh, would tell him that with documents and, and, and stories that are this old, like more than almost 1,900, 2,000 years old, you would be very lucky to find one or two pieces of evidence. And he was used to finding three or four, but okay, he'll take their word for finding one or two. And he began the digging. All of the major world religions in, in the world, the major ones that have any reference to Christ, all record that he actually died except for one, Islam. Islam perpetuates the idea that Jesus didn't die on the cross and that, that once they took him off the cross, the, somehow after all of that beating, all of that bleeding, all of that hanging there for hours, the, the disciples were able to nurse him back to health and move him to another city to finish out his life. Five years ago, one of the, the lead, the, the, the lead um, uh, I don't want to say the right word for them, I'm, just the leaders of the Islamic religion in the Middle East admitted that this is a fault in their belief system. It is something wrong that is presented to them in the Quran and the Hadith. And it might be time for them to face the fact that they have something wrong. But this idea of Jesus didn't really die had slowly start to perpetuate itself. And it's something that Lee heard. And so he dug into it and he didn't find one or two sources to confirm that Jesus actually died. He found five outside the Bible. The Bible is a source in and of itself, and he didn't look at, he didn't take that one. He found five of them, and I want to show you a picture of the five places that he found these historical writings, and they're going to put it up on the screen here for me. Go ahead and put that up there, Jules. He found that all five of these people who have a need of a massive nose job on all of them, um, that just stuck out to me. I don't know why. It's, it's how my mind works. I'm sorry. I should, I, that's want to just kind of slip right up. He found first century Jewish historian Josephus, who was a Jewish man who worked for Rome, recorded that Jesus actually died. Tacitus, another early historian, Lucian, 
I'm going to butcher this terrible, uh, Maybar Saperian. I'm sorry if I, he's dead, so he doesn't care, right? And um, the Jewish Talmud, all five of those sources right there showed Lee that Jesus actually died. He tried to get a more recent, some more recent um, evidence, and so the Scientific Medical Journal of the American Medical Association, it's in your notes, did a research on this as well, historical and medical research on these sources, and came to this conclusion. Clearly, the weight of the historical and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead even before the wound to his side was inflicted. Clearly, the weight of the historical and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead even before the wound to his side was inflicted. And looking at things like this, this is not just some rogue, weird blog website. This is before all of that and a peer-reviewed scientific journal that did their own research to come to the conclusion he really died. Gerd Ludeman is an atheist scholar from Vanderbilt University, an atheist scholar who doesn't believe in God from Vanderbilt. And he's, he's a German man, and he came to this conclusion after his own research on the same subject. Next line in your notes. Jesus' death as a consequence of crucifixion is indisputable. What Lee discovered was that if you walk into any major academic institution in the country and say, Jesus didn't die on the cross, all of the people will laugh you out of the building. He was trying to disprove his death and found he couldn't because Jesus really died. Second thing, if he couldn't, if he couldn't find out that Jesus didn't really die, maybe he could um, prove that this was just all made up. And so number two in your notes, early evidence. He found early evidence. Next line in your notes is the, the question he asked is, was the story of Jesus just a made-up legend? Was the story of Jesus just a made-up legend? I mean, that happens, right? People tell stories, oral traditions, and they kind of add a little bit, you know, into the story, and it turns into something else. Anybody ever played that old game, Telephone? Um, if you're under 30, a telephone was this thing that connected to the wall. Sorry, Zach. He's looking at me like rolling his eyes. My bad. Um, just Google it. But you remember that old game, Telephone, where someone would start and say, Matt has on brown shoes or something like that. And by the time they pass it all the way down the line, it's like, you know, Sergio went to the mall. It's like something completely different. You know, they're supposed to pass it along. And you think that's kind of how it's funny, but that's kind of how oral tradition works. And so I'm sure this is just some made-up nonsense, right? And so there's no evidence out there to, to prove that it really wasn't a legend. Let's, let's just find where it started to kind of the story started to turn. And so one of the things that Lee found was... Um, in his study was something from a man named A.N. Sherwin-White. He was a fellow at St. John's College and the University of Oxford, and he wrote a book called Roman Society and Roman Law in the New Testament. He determined, uh, Sherwin-White de determined, that the passage of two generations is not enough time for mythical tendencies or the tendencies of oral tradition to wipe out the core of historical facts. Here's what he's saying. 
the passage of two generations, which is typically 40 to 45 years, so between 80 and 90 years, isn't enough time without technology, without the internet, without whatever, without all the stuff that we enjoy today for a story to be spread out and destroy all of the facts. So he's thinking in his mind, okay, so if there can't be any sources that are newer than 80 years. I mean, like if you look at the, the writings of Alexander the Great, they were compiled 400 years after his death. And most scholars look at them as if they're accurate. So he was only given the, the, the story of the resurrection an 80 to 90 year window, not a 400 year window. Surely there wasn't going to be the evidence to contradict that. But then as he started digging, he realized, next line of your notes, that Paul wrote the biblical book of 1 Corinthians 22 to 25 years after Jesus' death. And you may wonder, why does that matter when he wrote 1 Corinthians? Because... There is a creed in this next passage of scripture we're going to read that talks about Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. Let's read together. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 7. I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, as scripture said, there's the death. He was buried in, there's the burial, and raised from the dead, the resurrection, on the third day, just as the scripture has said. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. What Paul is doing here is he's not 80 or 90 or 100 years away from this time frame that um, that Sherwin-White has kind of found in his study that would take to to, to create a legend and replace the facts of the, of the resurrection of Christ, 20 years. Inside 20 years, you have Paul passing on the idea of the death, burial, and the resurrection. And he thought, man, 20 years, it's inside the window, but it's still a long time. And then he dug deeper and found this. Michael Golder, professor of biblical studies, University of Birmingham. He said this, Paul's testimony about the resurrection appearances from 1 Corinthians, quote, goes back to at least, uh, at least to what Paul was taught when he was converted a couple of years after the crucifixion. He's not getting further, the story of the resurrection is not getting further away from when it actually happened. He's finding sources that keep putting it closer and closer and closer. And the closer it gets, the more he realizes this is not some made-up myth or legend. This is closer to being true. And then the nail in the coffin, James D.G. Dunn, professor of divinity of the Department of Theology and University of Durham, said this. We can be entirely confident that the creed, which 1 Corinthians 15, was formulated as tradition within months of the death of Christ. Lee was looking to find early evidence, not expecting to find it, expecting to find that a myth just kind of grew and grew like a, like a movie plot story, like the game of telephone, of oral tradition. And what he found was exactly opposite, that it was recorded by the men who saw Jesus within months of seeing him. He was trying to disprove the resurrection on early evidence, and he found that there was quite a bit of evidence that it was not made up. 
Number three in your notes, the third thing that he tried to, to prove or use to disprove the resurrection was empty tomb evidence. <clears throat> empty tomb evidence. There was a big question in his mind in his next line in your notes, was the body of Jesus actually buried? And you may wonder, well, he died. Of course he got buried. And you look at it from a westernized culture because we bury our dead. But in this time frame, there were some people who have started to present the idea to Lee that um, the crucifixion victims weren't allowed to be buried. And he thought, aha, if they weren't allowed to be buried, there's nobody that buried, buried Jesus. Most of these people were left on the cross or their bodies were discarded so that the animals or birds would come and pick their flesh apart. It's kind of adding insult to injury for the family. It was the nature of their revealed cruelty of the Romans. And he thought, oh, man, I've got it now. I've got it now because if they didn't really bury him, he didn't come out of that tomb. If they just left his body up there and birds ate it or something, let me find the evidence for this, but as he began to dig, even this argument for him began to fall apart because the Byzantine emperor Justinian I compiled a summary of the Roman law and procedures of the first century, of the first century referred to as the digesta. I want to digest some food later, so I'm going to go faster for this message. But dad joke. Um, but this book, the Digesta, the summary stated that crucifixion victims can be buried. They were allowed to be buried. And so here he was thinking he had an angle to disprove the resurrection because Jesus was never buried. But he found out, no, the law actually did state victims could be buried. Then Lee ran across, across another piece of evidence. And I'm going to ask uh, the put the next picture up on the screen here. Um, this is a picture of a skeleton, right? It's me in high school. I'm just kidding. Um, um, it, <laughs> they just keep coming. Sorry, man. Woof. I got to work on that. Um, this is a picture of a skeleton that was found buried in a tomb. And in your notes, it's in 1968, a crucifixion victim's body was discovered during an archaeological dig. And this is it. The spike, the line you know, it's the spike was still present in the ankle bones of the person who was crucified. This is a crucifixion victim here. He's in a tomb. And if you can hit that next slide for me. This is the heel bone that was a part of that skeleton with the spike still through it. It was uncovered in an archaeological dig in 1968, further giving evidence that the crucifixion victims were allowed to be buried. He's got it now in living color. Well, in dead color. He thought, well, man, I thought I had him on this one. I thought I had him, but this verifies they were allowed to be buried and so he kept digging and he what he found was that the information kept getting worse for his position all the evidence started kept pointing to the reality of the the resurrection the next line of your notes the enemies of jesus admitted his tomb was empty 
admitted his tomb was empty. If you remember the the story of the New Testament after Jesus rose, what did the Roman guards do? What did the Roman Roman, um, leaders and the government do? They told everybody, oh, the disciples must have came and took his body. They could have easily squashed the whole thing by going, nope, there's the tomb. There's his body. They could have shut everybody up. But no, the tomb is empty. They're admitting the tomb is empty, and now they're trying to rationalize, well, we didn't believe he was God, so what what could have happened? As he began to dig, he he started looking at all the motives of the people involved, and Lee found out that the Roman government couldn't have taken the body because they wanted Jesus dead. They wanted to walk by the tomb and be like, hey, all you Christian folks, there's your king. He's over there in that tomb. The Jewish leaders didn't take his body because they wanted Jesus to stay dead. They thought he was blaspheming, saying that he was God and from God. The disciples didn't have the motive, means, or opportunity to overpower trained Roman soldiers, open a sealed tomb, and take the body with nobody seeing him in the middle of the night. These guys were fishermen, tax collectors, recognized as men who had been with Jesus. No one was going to keep that story quiet. Lee had to admit, there's evidence that there's no body in the tomb. Last piece of evidence he focused on was eyewitness evidence. He knew this one would be difficult, but he decided to dig into it a little bit further and What he found is that, next line in your notes, Jesus appeared alive in more than a dozen different instances to more than 500 people. It's very important that you understand this next part here. Jesus appeared to skeptics, doubters, believers, men, women, groups, individuals, He appeared at daytime and nighttime. People spoke to him, touched him, and ate a meal with him. Why is that important? Because if there was only one group of people that stood outside and were singing songs and the sun shined right off a cloud the right way and it just kind of looked like a cloud person and you went, there's the Lord. Everybody could go, oh, it was like a religious experience. If everybody saw him at the same time, but the beauty is the brilliance of God to appear at daytime and nighttime, inside and outside, on the bank and in someone's home, to appear to one or two people and then a group of people, a few people walking down the road and then a group of people who are having dinner. He goes to all these different places. And earlier in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, hey, some of, most of these guys are still alive. Go talk to them. He is inviting them to investigate the evidence, exactly what Lee is doing. And the more he digs into the evidence and his pursuit of truth, even though he was leaning toward that atheist side, looking for ways to affirm that this story of the resurrection was nonsense, he kept coming into roadblocks of truth. Remember we said one or two sources, you'd be kind of lucky to have those. Historical facts to back up things. Next line of your notes. 
nine ancient sources confirmed the belief of the disciples that they encountered the risen Jesus. Nine. And here's a very important thing. Next on your notes. None of the disciples recanted their belief. None of them. You may look and say, well, you know, if people believe a lie enough, they might be willing to give their life for it. They might be willing to die for it, even if they just kind of made up the thing in their head. Let's think about that for a second. Before Jesus died, Peter was approached by a woman who said, weren't you with Jesus? And what did he do? Denied him. Denied him while he was alive three times, fulfilling what the Lord said he would do. What did Peter do after Jesus died? Somebody asked him, what are you going to do now that Jesus is gone? And you know what his response was? Anybody know what his response was? I'm going fishing. He went back to his previous profession. And then something happened. That he left that profession, no longer denied his Savior, and took that belief that Christ had risen from the dead and preached the gospel until he died. You're telling me that guy, that guy who has already denied Christ, that guy who said, well, this is over, I'm going back to my old job. You're telling me that guy is going to take the lie all the way to the end and give his life? No, sir. His character has already shown he wouldn't do that. There's some dispute about how some of the disciples died, but one of the accounts of Peter, how he died was um, he watched the Roman soldiers torture and rape his wife in front of him multiple times and crucify her. One of the accounts has Peter laying at the feet of that cross, wiping the blood from his wife's feet, telling her, remember the Lord. And then it came to his term, his time, and they said, you going to re- recant this now? You want to tell us that Jesus didn't raise from the dead? And he said, no. The only thing I got to say is I'm not worthy to be crucified as my Lord. And he asked them to crucify him upside down. And they obliged. You're telling me the guy that denied Christ three times and went back to his old job went to that end on a lie? Mm-mm. On a made-up story because he didn't want to look bad anymore? Nope. Next on your, ni- your notes, nine ancient sources, nine ancient sources. I'm sorry, six. Six sources outside of the Bible that confirmed the disciples lived a life of deprivation and suffering as a result of their proclamation that Jesus had risen from the dead. They didn't blindly commit to a false story with that level of conviction. They were there. 
Lee's weekend experience, uh, experiment and intent to disprove the gospel turned into a two-year work. Two years. Two years he researched to find the truth about the gospel, to try to break down the idea of the resurrection so that his wife could get out of this weird cult that he thought she was a part of. Two years of investigation, and he kept digging and digging and digging until one day he sat at his kitchen table and said, all the evidence points one direction. And the more I dig, the more I find that validates this story of the resurrection. And Lee Strobel, the winning and award-winning investigative journalist, decided I had to come to a conclusion and knelt down at that moment. And this is what he said. In light of the avalanche of evidence that points so powerfully towards the truth of Christianity, listen to this, I realize it would take more faith to maintain my atheism than to become a Christian. It took more faith to not believe in God because he had all of the evidence staring him in the face that Christ died, he was buried, and he rose again. And there is eyewitness accounts to validate the story that is the linchpin of our faith today. He took all of his findings and put them in a book. It's the last picture I want to show you. It's called The Case for Christ. He did even more investigative work after the book was originally published and re-released an expanded edition in 2016 with even more evidence than he originally documented. He said as he knelt there on the floor, not at a church, not at the Bible study, not anywhere else, he knelt down at the floor of his home And he said he just confessed every sin he could possibly remember. And he said, I'm glad I was alone because if anyone heard everything that I had ever done, every raunchy sexual liaison, every immoral act, every drug, every drink, everything I tried, everything that I did, every person that I hurt in my hedonistic pursuit of self-gratification and pleasure, he said, your hair would curl. He knelt on the floor and told the Lord, I believe. And that day, a hedonistic, atheist, cynic, with a heart that was so hard, that hated everything about God and Christianity, who set out to disprove him, found that all the evidence pointed to it being the truth. Good story, Matt. I'll write his, I'll, I'll get his book. I'll, I'll go read it, but cool, man. But how does the ancient story apply to me? Apply to where I am today? 
What's the evidence that he really changed? When Lee got up, he said, my values, morality, character, priorities, relationships, marriage, parenting, everything about me changed for the better. And you could say, well, that's good for him. I mean, again, I mean, how do we know that he really changed? And I think the greatest piece of evidence of that man's heart change is found in the innocent confession of his five-year-old daughter, Allison. Allison would see daddy come home and run to the room, but after a while, she noticed the yelling would stopped. There was no more kicking holes in the wall. They were suddenly repaired. There was no more screaming and yelling at mommy or him or, or her. And as she watched the transformation of Lee's life happen right in front of her face, she came out of the room several weeks later and went to her mom and said, I want whatever God did for daddy to be done for me. And that girl grew up to be someone who gave all of her effort to showing people the evidence about Jesus is true. Why in the world tell a bunch of people in this room, who most of which are probably already believers, why give you evidence that what you believe is true? Well, first of all, if you're in this room and you don't believe, I'm telling you all of the evidence points to the resurrection being absolutely 100% true. And if you will pursue truth and not agreement, Go look for what the truth really is, not what I want to be true or what I wish to be true or what I hope to be true. Go look at it yourself. But for most of us, I know many of us in here are believers and have been for a long time. Why in the world tell you again that there is evidence for what you believe? Because I don't know about you, but as I was going through Lee's story and I was studying these things and I was looking up these quotes for myself and I was looking up the, the arguments for these things myself and I was going through and reading, it did something in me. There's the, the culture is constantly trying to undermine our footing of scripture, trying to undermine our footing of belief. Uh, do you really believe? Is that really what scripture says? What about this thing? And they throw some weird oddball thing at you and you're like, I don't know. And you feel dumb and you're like, Ben, is this really true? I am here to reinforce the foundation of your faith that the resurrection, the death, the burial, the resurrection actually happened and all of the secular evidence points to it. It has come out of the mouth of atheist scholars that what we believe can be verified. There are points of it that can be verified from the mouths of people who are unbelievers. How good and how perfect and how wonderful is God to put his truth in the mouth of an unbeliever to tell us as believers what you're believing is the right thing to do. God works in the most impossible scenarios. 
If you are in an impossible scenario, you have hope. Yes, because Jesus got up, but he is working for your good in the midst of the most impossible scenario you could ever imagine. God doesn't require a perfect atmosphere or a perfect person to start to come through and answer your prayers. The God that we serve sees where you are, the imperfection of your life, the imperfection of your relationships, and he begins to work in the most imperfect places. And out of the mouth of imperfect, unbelieving people has come evidence for all of us as believers that what he said and what he did is true. You know it in your heart. That's why you're a believer. You have already come to faith. That's why you're a believer. But the people out there who you are praying for, I have good news for you. God can handle their questions. And if you're in this room and you got a question about God, God can handle your question. He can handle you looking closely at his character. If you look closely at mine, you will find all the flaws. I'll just tell you what they are right out if you want to know. I'll just tell right on myself because there's no point in hiding them because I can't get those things I can't get those creases ironed out of my out of my robe of righteousness on my own I need the blood of Jesus to do that so when you examine my character you will find the flaws when you examine the character of the people around you you will find the flaws but you examine the character of Almighty God you are going to find a pristine perfect character a pristine perfect love that will never fail you he can handle you looking closely at his character he can handle you doing your research. Let me find out if this is really true. He could handle leads, an award-winning investigative journalist looking, trying to pick the story apart. He could handle that from you. And more importantly, he can change you into a new person when you become someone who is a faithful believer in Jesus Christ. If you're in this room, he can handle you. If you're an unbeliever, you know an unbeliever, you're praying for somebody, he can handle them. No problem. He's strong enough to handle that. My encouragement for you in everything that you do, believer or unbeliever alike, is pursue the truth. I used to get real nervous when I get around people who wanted to talk about they didn't believe in God or the scripture, and I get all ready. Here we go. Okay, pull out my phone. I got my notes here. Ready? What do you got? And feel like their salvation depended on my ability to answer a question. No. Their salvation depends on if they're going to be able to handle the pursuit of truth instead of agreement. Why am I so confident that I don't have to give you all the answers or have to know all the answers as a, someone who's been in ministry as a pastor, as a believer in Christ? Why do you not have to have all of the answers? You may look at some of the things we went through today and be like, man, I don't even know how to spell some of those words he said today or those names, Gerd Ludeman. Who's, who names their child that? Slap that child's mother, right? Like, I mean, like, who? Gerd. Hey, hey, Gerd, you know, he didn't get me. I don't know these guys. How am I supposed to present that? You don't have to know everything. You have to incur, you have to present what you know, study to show yourself approved, be ready to give an answer for the reason that you have faith, but you don't have to pick all this apart and be all knowing. You got to encourage somebody to find the truth. Why? Because John 14, one through six says this. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. 
there is more than enough room in my father's home. If it were not so, would I have told you um, that, that I am going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come back and get you so that you will always be with me where I am and you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas, no, we don't, Lord. We have no idea where you're going, so how can we know the way? And then Jesus told them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. If you're in this room or you're listening to this later and you're like, man, I don't even know if this is right, pursue the truth. You're not going to tell me only to read the Bible and not look at the other. Nope. Pursue the truth. Yes, read the Bible. You want to put some other sources? There's a, a bunch of other, other sources out there. Pursue the truth. I am so confident that Jesus is the truth, that if you look for him, that road is going to end with you finding him. Pursue the truth. There is no reason, Christian. There is no reason, believer in Christ. There is no reason, disciple or follower of Jesus, for you to be ashamed or cower back when the culture roars. Why do you believe this nonsense? Because I've got evidence that shows it's the truth. And part of that evidence, part of the evidence that Jesus rose from the dead is that the cynical, ugly, judgmental, legalistic, hateful, envious, jealous heart that resided in me is changed. You are the evidence. You are the evidence, the fruit of your salvation and the spirit of God. The, the fruit that is born from your life is evidence that you have been transformed by a work that is not your own. That points back to the truth of the resurrection. Because if God didn't get up, we have no hope. But he did. And he didn't get up to make bad people good. He got up to make dead people alive. And he took a heart of flesh self-centered, gross contents that was me and said, I'm going to bring you to life because the end of all those things is death. You should walk out of here tonight if you're a believer with a reinforced foundation, hope, and a little bit of swag. And if you don't know what swag is, find the guy who doesn't know what the newspaper is and he'll tell you. <laughs> if you don't get that, your wife will explain to you on the way home. <clears throat> there should be a confidence that comes from us because we have the truth. So, what are you going to do with the truth?